I stay bout it, I'm not pouting Break through walls and climb it mountains If you want it, scream it loud And show this world what they've been G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Tamen podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family, and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Brain Tamen Show. Today, I'm really fortunate to be chatting with uh, Dr. Bruno Kayun. Is that how you say it, Bruno? Or should That's you? correct. Thank there you, Liam. That's correct. So Dr. Bruno is a clinical psychologist and principal developer of Mindfulness Integrated Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, MICBT for short, which we'll talk a lot about today, of course. He's the director of MICBT Institute, a leading provider of MICBT training and professional development to mental health services and professional associations internationally since 2003, so quite a while now. Uh, Bruno keeps a private practice in Hobart, Australia, and has practiced mindfulness, which I talk a lot about on this program, mindfulness, meditation, and undergone intensive training in France, Nepal, India, and Australia since 1989. He is the author of three MICBT books, and co-author of the Clinical Handbook of Mindfulness Integrated Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, a step-by-step guide for therapists. So we'll be unpacking this school of of thought throughout this chat together, um, as well as the power and practical nature, I suppose, of mindfulness. So I encourage you guys to stick around. Um, And with with that said, mate, welcome to the show, Bruno. Thank you, Liam, and thank you for having me. Mate, it's, it's a pleasure and I really appreciate you carving out the time. Um, I've dove into your work over the last week or, or two and become really interested. So I'm excited to, um, to pick your brain a little bit today and, and share it with the audience. You, uh, you're pretty well known around Australia now for the work that you do and, and the books you, you've written, of course. But for those not familiar with you, let's perhaps start by sharing a snapshot of what MICBT is all about and um, I guess why that might be beneficial to, um, to learn for the audience. Okay, so MICBT or Mindfulness Integrated Cognitive Behavior Therapy is an integration um, and tight integration, not juxtaposition only, of traditional uh, Vipassana meditation. So not a diluted model, but what you learn in the East, if you like, as uh, presumably originally taught. And um, it, it falls under the umbrella of mindfulness methods, yeah, because it is one. And cognitive behavior therapy, uh, which is an evidence-based approach uh, that addresses quite a wide range of conditions and also subclinical difficulties. Yeah. So uh, the combination of the two really doesn't leave much cracks uh, through which uh, people's symptoms can go and it really helps address a, a wide range of symptoms within 
the same person, which means that it addresses what we call comorbidity or even multimorbidity, because we work not just at the level of symptoms or, or disorders or you know, diagnosis, we work at the level of brain reactivity. So once you decrease brain reactivity and you increase awareness and you increase acceptance, then there's not, not many um, problems, psychological problems uh, you, you cannot address. For example, we will work with someone with schizophrenia. Of course, not, not uh, you know, um, you know too, too intense uh, issues with psychosis. We, we would need uh, some medication with that. But, but schizophrenia of someone who's, you know, under treatment elsewhere, for example, but doesn't go much uh, further with their well-being because medication is limited and limiting at the same time. So they still have schizophrenic symptoms. What MICBT would do is make them a happier schizophrenic. That's the difference. Yeah. Mm. So they would still have voices, but they can smile, they can laugh, they can, they don't have to be stressed and depressed because of it. So that's just a, one example of how it addresses issues. But more specifically, um, it is delivered in a well-organized, very highly structured and yet flexible program that on average lasts 10 sessions usually. Yeah? And it, it does so because it capitalizes on steps mm. and they are hierarchical, hier hierarchical, sorry for the <laughs> French accent there, uh, hierarchical stages, which capitalize or rely, each of which rely on uh, the previous one. So if we don't, for example, settle the mind enough when we start mindfulness practice and we can't really start it uh, properly, especially if we have difficult thoughts to address like uh, intense ruminations or uh, you know really dysfunctional worries etc you can't sit down and observe your breath you're going to ruminate even more closed eyes yeah for instance um, so we settle the mind first and then we begin the practice some practices so we can go go into it if you have any questions but basically it's the stage it's a stage approach and you have stages within each stage. So with the first stage, which we call the personal stage, we learn to self-regulate. So we regulate attention. So we take a bit more control over our mind. And that is a sub-stage of stage one, which enables us to regulate emotions, uh, usually about a week later. So for regulation of attention uh, or samadhi in traditional language, we focus on the breath and learn to train. Uh, so we learn actually to train our own mind to be more disciplined and uh, not be so enslaved by our thoughts. Yeah? So we, we take some control over our mind and we don't think as much when we don't wanna think and we think clearly when we need to focus and think, for instance. It's not just about positive and negative. It's about controlling the mind, not just the content of thoughts. Once we have this more or less established to some degree, we don't need to be a Zen master to move on. Then we begin to use that concentration and regulate attention by surveying the body. We call it body scanning. But then again, that term can be a little misleading at times because it, other methods are using that term in a very different way. So this is the Vipassana element. So we develop insight, not just relaxation. Mm. 
big difference. To develop insight, you have to be exposed to situations, and in this case, internal situations, emotions, for instance, in a way that um, helps you develop equanimity, which is the ability to remain unperturbed by events that take place within the framework of our mind and body. So we scan the body to develop equanimity for several weeks in different ways. And in doing so, we learn to regulate emotions. Mm. So scanning the body, um, if I ask you, for example, Liam, um, do you feel angry sometimes like any human being? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you know you're feeling the anger when you're feeling it? I suppose it's, there's a lot of physiological um, symptoms yeah, how, to play out. There's, I guess, how, the, how do you feel? How do you feel that? This is a question we ask people all the time, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So for me personally, I would feel um, like a higher heart rate. I'd feel my, my fists so movement, clenched, movement, mo- in the body. movement in the body. I'd feel stiff and I'd feel, um, I'd feel tight. Uh, and yeah, on, so on constriction, and yeah. constriction. Yep. I'd feel on edge. So almost like a level of anxiety, agitation, to it. agitation, because yeah. yeah. we all uh, a bit scared of our anger too, because we know it's often, uh, you know, risky <laughs> to express it and so on. And sometimes not even what we want to do. So we can get a bit anxious about anger. And also people report feeling hot when they feel angry. You know, there's mm. a degree of um, heightened arousal, which uh, brings more blood under the skin, so you get more heat. So these, would you you would agree, are sensations in the body? Yeah, that's what you're describing. Yeah. What about anxiety? Do you feel a bit of anxious anxiety or some fear sometimes for some reasons? Like very, anybody? very much so. That's right. So how do you know you're feeling the fear or the anxiety when you do feeling? I mean, yeah? so feeling yeah. is a is a tight chest. I often depending on what's how, how far down the road I am, so, so to speak, in that state, I might get sweaty hands. Mm. I feel, uh, I know my, I can barely think. I feel stuck in the moment. Um, mm. I feel heavy. So legs feel heavy. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So lots of sensations in the body again. That's how you know that you feel the way you do. Yeah? Otherwise you're in your head. You're, you're just dissociated. Yeah? Mm. And what about sadness? Do you feel sad occasionally like any human being? I sure do. How do you know you're feeling the sadness when you're feeling it? I'm putting uh, you on the spot there. No, yeah. that's no, I like it. So there's a level of heaviness again. Um, Indeed. I feel like my Indeed. body is is drooped over. It's hard to stand upright with any level of of confidence. Mm. Um, and yeah, just it, my body and life, and from an abstract sense, seem very heavy. Indeed, and heaviness is the hallmark of sadness. Yeah. Um, nobody excitedly says, "Oh, I'm really feeling sad today." No, nobody does that. So. Um, whether you feel angry, anxious, or sad, and you can add sexually aroused, disgusted, ashamed, no matter what emotion we feel, if we don't feel them in the body, then we don't have them. We don't feel them. Or we have them, but we dissociate it. We don't feel emotions. So to feel an emotion, by implication, we have to feel it. And to feel it, there's no other places than the body. You can't feel it a meter above your head or in front of you, etc. So if we only feel emotions within the framework of this body, then emotions are made of sensations. Yeah? Is that an acceptable reasoning? It absolutely okay. is. So, and we, we know that in science, yeah, in, in um, affective neuroscience, 
we know that when we feel emotional, the insular cortex fires up. And that's the, one of the main area, um, areas of the body that, that, that is activated during emotional processing. So, and we know that in mental health conditions or disorders, the insula is dysfunctional, is impaired, is in deficit. So, which means that we're not very able to feel emotions when we have mental health conditions. So here's the, here's the relationship now, the rationale for body scanning. What do you think would happen if given that all emotions are made of sensations, if you were training your mind to scan the body, to feel any sensation you may feel in any part, accept it unconditionally, and then move to the next part. Feel, accept, move. Feel, mm. accept, move. Continuously from the top of the head to the tip of the toes, back up to the top of the head continuously, morning and evening, day after day, week after week in different ways. So that progressively all sensations in the body, whether they're due to physical exertion, digestion, climate, or indeed due to an emotion, what do you think would happen if all body sensations have become acceptable, given that emotions are made of them? What would happen when you have an emotion if all sensations are now acceptable? It would certainly make it easier to move through it and not get stuck for an extended period of time in that, in that emotion. Absolutely. You would regulate emotions. Mm. You would feel it and feel it more than before. You're not less human. You're more human in that mm. sense. Yeah? So you feel it even deeper and you feel it because you're more sensitive by training your, your mind to feel sensations, you feel the early cues of distress. Not too late when an emotion's already, uh, you know, swallowing you up and you have to react to feel better. Burst into tears, react with anger, run away with fear. By feeling it earlier through the more subtle early cues of distress in the body, learning to accept those sensations, because first of all, it's easier to do at an early stage, uh, then gives you an opportunity to serve the wave, so to speak, yeah? to feel it, to accept it, and stay um, in the situation without avoiding it or without overly reacting to it. And of course, you become much more functional, whether you're depressed, anxious, or uh, whatever condition, or, or you're a well-functioning human being, you still benefit from regulating emotions in this way. Yeah. And that is only stage one of MICBT. This is just the self-regulation. This uh, is the personal stage that you reference? That's is that right? right. It's yeah. just the personal stage. Then there is a second stage where we call it uh, the exposure stage, where we regulate behavior, not just emotions and attention, but behavior, avoidant behavior is very detrimental in our, in our daily life. So we may avoid uh, all sorts of things in life. We may avoid situational um, factors like uh, we may avoid people, we may avoid socializing, we may avoid being in silence without checking our phone every two minutes. We may avoid because we might feel that we miss out or we feel lonely and abandoned. Uh, we may avoid uh, heights, we may avoid talking to our boss, we may avoid uh, having sex or trying again and again when she or he refused so many times nonetheless uh, to show that we're still interested in our partner <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and not afraid of rejection because 
sensations associated with rejection are now acceptable. Yeah? We can let them pass, etc., etc. We may avoid pain. So we stay home instead of exercising and, and following the good advice of our physio and, and pain specialists, and so on and so forth. We may avoid isolation and sadness. So we, we abuse drugs. We may, uh, you know, we may avoid, uh, you know, being in a, put on the spot in a social context or performing in public. And we take beta blockers or we take alcohol, which acts in a very similar way in the brain. And all these constitute avoiding life. We avoid our life in so many ways. And we end up, we end up, uh, uh, not, uh, it's not a campaign against social media, MICBT, don't get me wrong. Uh, but we, we, we avoid living our full life and resort to an online life, yeah, which is a very sad story in reality. So whether we have a mental health condition or not, anyone can benefit from those stages. So the second stage helps us regulate behavior by decreasing avoidance. The third capitalizes on stages one and two to bring those skills into an interpersonal situation, which means when we feel conflicted or tense with someone, an individual, whoever that is, an authority, a child, um, a beloved one, a parent, whoever that is, when we lack assertive uh, communication, and that doesn't mean anger and forcefulness, but when we lack this, we, uh, we become angry or we become passive, but we rarely function in harmony with regards to um, what we need and what we think or believe, our views. So we, we don't express ourselves well, we remain tense around people and it damages relationship. You know, I have clients, as you know, as a, I'm a clinician and I see quite a lot of uh, patients or clients in my practice. And I have clients who have no friends except one of their siblings and all their friends are online. And that's that. So they don't sleep all night because they live overseas. And if they want to have any relationship with their friends between inverted commas, then it has to be in the middle of the night. So as a, as a result, they can't go to work, they can't function, they can't do much. And they think they have wonderful friends. But of course, if a friend pulls a face and begin to be a bit avoidant, you don't see that online. You just type on a, on a, uh, you know, on a screen and, and that's what you've got. So uh, that person in particular, I'll be very careful with confidentiality, is really troubled because um, that person didn't see it coming when that best friend between inverted commas abandoned that person, that client, and there was no cue. So here in stage three, we learn to detect cues that reside within the other person. So we scan the other person, uh, uh, supposed body sensations, and we learn to be compassionate uh, towards their discomfort and not react to their reactions. So not reacting to other people's reactivity is not easy to do. So we need to develop the, the skills that I mentioned a bit earlier. And once we understand others' suffering, how they react because of their sensations in the body as well, and we don't react to that, then we can move to stage four, which is the empathic stage. And at that stage, our initial problems look very small. 
because we're more in our heart. And it's not an airy-fairy kind of new agey approach. This is 25 century old we're talking about. Yeah, this is a teaching of ancient, um, ancient Buddhist psychology, which remains today very, very advanced, in fact, if we understand it with our Western psychological science. It's very advanced in reality. So we develop compassion, which produces neuroplasticity as well, in a, in a method called loving kindness meditation, which we practice every day as well. And along with that, MICBT includes active, explicit, ethical behavior. So we learn to prevent harmful uh, actions, harmful speech, and harmful intentions towards ourselves and others. So that's part of the, the fourth stage, learning to live in a less harmful way, in any possible way, with, um, uh, as a motivating factor, compassion. So compassion is served to prevent harm in this case. And that's that. And then people uh, maintain their gains by practicing once a day for as long as they want with audio instructions. And, you know, it's quite a, quite well organized with regards to the material used. That is, uh, that is wildly powerful and there's so much to unpack. And I think what I like most, Bruno, is that what I'm, what I'm getting from that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there really is a, there's a level of intentionality and practice to it. And I think you mentioned the word training a couple of times. We are training mm-hmm. our mind. And the reason I bring that up is I would, I would think, and I know from my own experience and I would think from some of the clients and patients you work with that, um, as you start that process, particularly if it's a new process and you are feeling these emotions, we are feeling these body sensations like we touched on there, um, it might not feel very good at first. So it would be all too easy, I would think, to just try all that and understand what we're talking about from a sort of logical cognitive sense. But then it, when we try to implement these practices, it just feels a little too scary. So um, is that a large part of this process that, yes, there is a, an element of consistent intentional practice over time to really have the kind of impact where it becomes something that I guess you'd almost look forward to knowing that it, it can have a benefit? Absolutely. This is quite accurate, actually. Uh, to begin with, um, so yes, there's a lot to unpack, as you say. <laughs> uh, to begin with, it's difficult to feel sensations in the body because we haven't produced neuroplasticity yet. The brain hasn't wired uh, the uh, insular cortex and somatosensory cortex in, in ways that allows us, uh, allow us to feel sensations uh, throughout the body. So uh, what we can feel usually is discomfort or great pleasure. So the, the most... Um, uh, intense sensations. So when, when we have pain or disease or an infection and when we have great pleasures. Yeah. So the both sides of either side of the bell curve, if you like. Yeah. Um, but what is uh, most common sensations still lies below level of awareness. So the first step is to um, develop that ability to feel things in the body. And when in, uh, we talk about the case of um, uh, anxiety, often people try not to feel. Yeah, mm. They try not to feel all these sensations in the body because, as I said, they're unpleasant. And even medication often is part of that, you know, it's part of not feeling that miserable state of feeling, you know, discomfort everywhere. That applies to pain, of course. 
And we work a lot with pain, with MICBT, chronic pain. So then we become more aware of common sensations and also aware of the not so pleasant ones. But the beauty of the, the delivery of the, the training, and it is indeed a training, is that progressively, as we become aware of those sensations, we also become more equanimous, less reactive and more accepting of them. And this is the training. This is the core of the training, learning experiential acceptance. And the brain does not activate the amygdala and other parts um, because there's no assumption of threat. And there's no assumption that I'm not going to cope with this discomfort in my belly. You know, I have that morning and evening when I meditate anyway, so it's not a big deal. And you learn to remain equanimous, which means non-reactive and observing its impermanence. That's another feature that we learn through practice, but also through psychoeducation, that everything is impermanent. We know that since ancient Greece, since the Buddha, we know that by looking at our life. And as you see, I don't have many hair on top of my head anymore. This is not because the Sandman came overnight and, and put some magic uh, sand over my head and suddenly I became uh, decades older. It's because every moment is a moment of change. Mm. And, and these moments of change, we, we miss them in our life. We don't pay attention to them. So we become so attached, even attached to our disorder sometimes. Mm. We, 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 we don't trust that being happy is a good deal because we're so used to be miserable. Mm. So uh, changing is scary. Even change towards success is scary because now I, I may think that if, if I'm successful, I'll have all these you know, um, responsibilities to, <laughs> to work with, etc., etc. So we learn laws, universal laws as we progress. It's not just decreasing symptoms here. It's developing wisdom. And this mm. is the true purpose of mindfulness. I mean, practicing mindfulness to be mindful is foolish. Who cares about being mindful? Being mindless is much more fun. Right. Yes. You can do anything you like, say anything you want to anyone, whether it hurts or not. You can drink, smoke, do anything you like. Um, and the problem, of course, is the consequence of that. And so <laughs> consequences of that on oneself and others. Why then be mindful? Why learn to be mindful? Because it leads us towards wisdom. So mindfulness is a tool of investigation that gives us the objectivity to develop wisdom, without which we can't look at things objectively. We will look at things with the memory of who we are, you know, with our biases, judgments, and reactions. And we can't possibly uh, develop the insights necessary for seeing things the way they are, which means developing wisdom unless we have a tool of investigation that's so neutral that the self is not involved. And this is what good understanding of mindfulness is. Okay? An abstraction of self-processing and the resulting reactivity and judgmentality. So when we have that objective tool of investigation, we use our consciousness to discover things the way they are, and we learn. And the one thing we learn systematically is that things change. So even if those sensations are not pleasant, you know, you know for a fact through your training, they will pass. 
I really like Bruno that you touched on there. Uh, that uh, and I talk a lot about on this program the idea of in this example mindfulness. We're not doing it. We're not practicing these things just to be mindful. It does serve a purpose. It's to ultimately, like you said, it leads to a level of wisdom and even to a level of fulfillment and content and, and calmness, which um, is a really good way to look at it. So then for the everyday punter, so to speak, what are some um, what are some kind of practical ways to start building more mindfulness? Is it is a good step one, the body scan practice in the morning, in the evening? Where's a good place to start to try and... Um, it depends where we from from what platform we start. So there are hundreds of teachers and teachings, and now they become a bit like monsoon frogs. You know, there there's a hundreds every season, and you wonder where the training came from. Uh, it's not to be critical of of people who teach, but one has to be careful as to where the teaching comes from. The first thing before you even undertake the practice is who trained my trainer, my teacher. You know, and who trained that trainer? Mm. Where is the lineage there? Where does it come from? Did it come from just a book? Which is not, it's not a bad thing, but we need to know where things come from. Because then we understand what is the tradition uh, that preceded the training I receive. Is that a Vipassana tradition? Is that a Shamatha, as, in, as it often in Tibetan Buddhism is? And what is the the prospect of uh, developing uh, certain skills with which method. You know, one has to investigate what method they're about to use before they use it. That's the first step. Second step is what platform do they use for that? Again, before they even engage. Do they have a teacher, life teacher or not? That makes a difference. If there is a mental health condition, I do not advise people to take a training in mindfulness without a therapist or without a dedicated, well-trained and accredited teacher, accredited in some form, but accredited teacher. Because with mental health conditions, we may not even remember that we've been traumatized uh, even before age two. We don't know. It might all come up during practice. And what do we do then? We turn everything off, putting on the, put it on the shelf, let it collect dust and we say, oh, mindfulness didn't work for me. Mm. We didn't get it. We simply did not get it. So we need to uh, be guided properly by someone well-trained and qualified. And to me, some of the, not all, but some of the most qualified people to address mental health are mental health professionals. And, you know, I'm, I'm quite clear on this. That is why we don't train MICBT, we don't provide training of MICBT to people who are not already mental health professionally uh, um, qualified. Yeah. They're not mental health professionals, we just don't provide the training. Um, and for the other context where it's not a mental health intervention, um, where we don't need to worry too much, too much, but still we need to be careful about trauma because not everyone with history of trauma will come to see a mental health professional because they function quite well. But when they start meditating, they must, might start to have a few flashbacks, which is okay, you know, if they practice properly and the, the memories are not too intrusive and, and they stay equanimous and understanding that this will pass and it's part of the training because this is an exposure method, exposure to their own depth. Hmm? 
then that will do that will go really well but again they need to know which method to use mm. and once they understand or have some guidance as to what method to use then if they use an micbt approach then they really need and this is not to sell material here that's not why i'm here today but they really need guidance so whether if it's not a teacher or a therapist or someone who's guiding them they are at least need psychoeducation about what they do. So they need the, certainly the audio instructions to be followed, to, to, uh, to follow, but they also need a book. Mm -hmm. You know, at least doing it on their own, they need a book, a guide to, um, and I guess you, you've looked into that blue book, is that right? Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's how they understand, they have more psychoeducation about each stage. If they don't use MICBT, then they still need psychoeducation. Otherwise, what people get is uh, the crumbs, as we call them. You know, they get crumbs. They get a bit of relaxation, but they don't get the exposure element of, of, of mindfulness meditation that leads them to um, let go of whatever they're clinging to mm. and what conditions their mind in, in for so many years sometimes. So to decondition the mind and, and be a bit more objective about what is conditioning and what is a legitimate response, then one has to have psychoeducation. Mm. So to everyone who wants to, um, to practice mindfulness meditation and get somewhere a bit more interesting than just relaxing, because there's a lot of overlap and therefore confusion between the two, then I recommend to, to obtain a good guide, whether in print or in the flesh and blood, and certainly audio instructions that are well-informed, that are um, produced by someone <coughs> who's well-trained with a train in the, in the lineage of well-trained teachers. That, that would be the, the basis. Mm. When it comes to techniques, then starting with body scanning would not be useful. Yeah? One needs to start with a little bit of relaxation first if they their man's agitated. If the man's not agitated, then they can start with mindfulness of breath. This is the first step to settle the mind, uh, but also to concentrate the mind. Yeah. So they develop an ability to regulate attention by developing three very strong and very important frontal lobe functions. The ability to sustain attention and not to take thoughts personally. The ability to inhibit their response, learned automatic response to thoughts, which is to think them when they intrude in consciousness. So learning to say thanks, but no thanks. I'm the boss here. Yeah, I, I have free will. Um, and I think if I want to think, that's not easy to do. And the third skill is really to abandon that thought and switch attention back to the breast flexibly, uh, without frustration, patiently, and continuously be aware of intrusive thoughts, knowing that they are just thoughts, not mine or me. Inhibiting the, the habit of thinking those thoughts and being caught up in them and switching attention back to the task at hand, which in this case is the breath. So that in daily life, they begin to be able to do the same. Already, this is very beneficial. Mm. And then they can scan the body. Yeah, that is a, that's a really good place to start and makes makes a lot of sense there. I've got, um, I feel like we could talk for a very long period of time. I have one more I want to run by you and then I'll um, I'll get you to share how you might be able to, how people can connect with you if they do want to learn more about you and, and the work you're doing here. Um, 
but just a little little caveat that might be of use. So this idea of equanimity and essentially, you know, um, these emotions and these bodily responses that come as a result, the ability to lose their potency, I suppose, is a really good thing. And I've had real world benefits from that. And that's in, in large part what we're talking about here, right, is being able to, um, yeah, look at things from more equanimous, uh, if that's the right word, point of this view. This is, this is. What, what I'm curious about is, um, is there a time and a place um, for, I guess what I'm asking is where do states of mind such as desire and motivation and things like that come into play? Are they, are they also bad? Should we not be over-indexing too far on what was, you know, quote unquote, a positive emotion? Mm. Um, I, yeah, I find even though I've had such benefits from dissociating from what I would call bad, you know, states or emotions. Um, mm-hmm. I do wonder if perhaps that can limit my desire, which then may limit my output and and so on and so forth. So I feel like it is a loaded question, but is there a, what are your thoughts around trying to balance that, if that makes sense? I think the question is very legit. It's not loaded. Um, I think uh, this is a very important question. Yeah? In fact, otherwise, you know, uh, is our life with equanimity become becoming morose and sad? And do we no longer enjoy the sun and uh, desire more the sun, etc., etc.? So this is a very important question. In fact, Liam, um, I would say that um, herein lies the difference between mindfulness and wisdom. This is very important to understand when we undertake a mindfulness-based program um, and and, and an informed one. It's if we understand mindfulness as a goal, instead of a means to an end, which is wisdom, then this, this is an issue indeed. Because if I am mindful and I know that everything is impermanent, as soon as I desire something and I have it, then it will be impermanent. I'll be miserable again. Sure, this is true. Yeah? Finally, I have my whatever, you know, Porsche four-wheel drive. Yeah, uh, nothing wrong with Porsche four-wheel drive. They look lovely. But um, it will soon become a tin pot. Yeah? A few years later, it's full of scratches. It's out of fashion. You know, I don't get the, the dopamine when I uh, rush, when I think about it. Uh, you know, I'm not so excited. All the excitement's gone. And I'm hooked on this excitement. So, you know, what do I do? Well, you know, um, uh, if I'm mindful, I, I don't react so much. But then I buy a Ferrari next. Yeah. And then again, I will have to use my equanimity and not to react. It makes no sense. It absolutely makes no sense because our life is not changing. So if we consider or conceptualize mindfulness as a tool of investigation, a means to develop wisdom, then the aim is wisdom. Once we develop more and more wisdom, we can ask ourselves, okay, I'm craving. I desire having, uh, you know, intercourse with my partner. Is that against mindfulness since it is craving sensations in the body? Well, if I'm a, a monastic, a nun or a monk, obviously there could be craving there too, certainly. Then that's not 
advisable. It's not desirable because that's not the context. It's we, you just work on this to prevent uh, the escalation of craving. And you usually, as a monk, you don't make many babies anyway. So it's not really the purpose. There. But if I'm quite, uh, you know, still in my young age and I want not only, <laughs> but I want some uh, intimacy with my partner, I'm going to have to crave sensations for that. And if I don't, my partner will feel... Um, you know, um, an interesting, um, undesired, not wanted, maybe even unloved, and and uh, this is not a this is not a good life in a relationship. Yeah, in general, generally speaking, when we desire the sun, there's nothing wrong with that, but we need to hold in mind that the rain will come after, and and it's okay not to be attached to it, but to enjoy it when it's there. It's the same with sexual arousal. It's it's perfectly fine with while being mindful uh, to want to have. In this case, don't try to be too mindful with sex because it's not going to work well. Yeah, if you're equanimous when you're about to engage with sex, I can assure you it's going to spoil your party. So <laughs> don't don't worry about it. This is not the time. Uh, to apply equanimity to um, sexual arousal. But you can still be mindful about, you know, if you use words, the words you use, not to be offensive, for example, or uh, not to be odd, you know, because it, it's offensive to, to, to the, the process and your partner, etc., etc. So there, are, there is a context where when we become more wise, become wiser through mindfulness practice where we practice what we call the right effort. That's very old terminology. And it simply means applied, uh, an applied um, mindfulness in order to reappraise what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Yeah. Mm. Again, ancient terminology, and I'm not talking about porridge here. Yes, this is wholesome thinking and desires. So if we say, well, I really want to expand my business. I'm craving for uh, business expansion. Is that, should I say, well, I should be mindful of my craving? The best is to say, is that a wholesome desire? Yeah. Now we work with wisdom, not just mm. equanimity. Is, is it a wholesome desire? Well, that depends. You know, if I expand my business, <clears throat> And my business is not harmful to myself or others. In fact, uh, my business is going to employ people. It's a pleasant one, and it has very wholesome components to it. For example, my business is to grow um, very healthy food, um, maybe organic food, and to, uh, you know, um, I have a scheme that will um, help. Actually, that's one of my ex-clients. Hmm. Wonderful idea to link farmers directly to consumers through a middle man, so to speak, but not so many middle uh, takers, if you like, uh, in a way that uh, very healthy organic food is accessible to people who don't have that much money. Well, why wouldn't you want to expand a business like that? Why wouldn't you want to desire that? So in Buddhist psychology, there are two types of desires, and they're very simple, wholesome and unwholesome. Unwholesome desires are what um, are desires that um, are going to have the potential to increase craving and aversion and the delusion about that ego that's something permanent. And wholesome desires are 
any desire linked to personal growth, to come out of suffering, reduce craving and aversion, and, and that overemphasis on one sense of self, which doesn't really exist. It's a man-made structure. So it is under, important to understand that uh, if mindfulness serves this purpose, then it is learned and practiced as per the Buddha's teaching and what it was meant to be. That makes a lot of sense. It's a really good assessment too. Um, and I feel like we've really scratched the surface of how much value there is to take from um, the work that you do and, the, and these practices. And I'm sure I will reach out and get you back on the show to unpack it more in the near future, mate. But for now, I will let you go. Um, where can people find more about you and, and the work that you do? How can we connect with you? So an easy way to remember how to connect is to do a search on MICBT Institute okay? or Mindfulness Integrated CBT Institute. And uh, everything is in there, really. It's very easy to navigate. Uh, people can even find therapists around the world who practice MICBT and can offer that service um, as a therapeutic tool. Uh, or um, <clears throat> colleagues who are trained and endorsed uh, teachers of the MICBT Institute can offer workshops, courses, um, well-being groups, etc. And uh, they can get in touch with me by looking at my bio on that website. Amazing. That I'll would put, be the easiest. I'll put the links in the show notes. Um, but like I touched on at the start, it's been really fun as I start to dive into your world and the work of MICBT. Hopefully the people listening or watching got some value from this, from this chat. I think we unpacked some really cool ideas. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to sort of dive into a little bit further uh, off air as well. So for now, again, thanks for coming at the time. And uh, until next time. Thank you, Liam. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come and share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.